I want to invite you to turn, as Greg said, to Exodus 15. We're going to be in verses 1 through 21. I don't know if you've ever given any thought to this, but I have a question for you this morning. What would you say is the most beautiful sound in the world? Give you a second to think. Is there a sound you would consider to be more pleasant, more enjoyable, more soul-stirring than any other? A lot of things might come to mind. Birds chirping and singing in the spring. Do you remember that? I, I think it's coming. That's a happy sound. Doesn't that refresh your soul when you just open the door, open the windows, and you hear birds singing? You just feel the sweetness of the morning. A, a baby cooing and babbling. We've got lots of those sounds going on. That can be a sweet sound. The sound of water, a lot of people would say, whether it's rain falling or waves lapping the shore or a waterfall. That is there's something relaxing and refreshing about that. Or what about a philharmonic orchestra performing a symphony by Mozart or Beethoven in over a hundred orchestral instruments in perfect harmony? Does anything compare to that? I would submit to you this morning that the most beautiful sound in the world is a chorus of human voices. The human voice. Particularly a chorus of human voices expressing joy in song. There is, in my opinion, no sound in all creation that compares in glory and beauty to that sound. And the reason, I would argue, is that human beings have souls Souls that were made by God to perceive glory and express delight in glory. If the eye, as they say, is the window to the soul, could be said that singing is the sound of the soul. I think that's why a stadium full of people singing a cappella, even at a U2 concert or a Coldplay concert, it can move you. It can move you to tears. It can send chills down your spine. Have you ever had that experience? You just feel something when you hear human voices. And because we have souls, there is something spiritual, lowercase s, about the unison of our voices. But if a chorus of voices is the greatest sound in the world, what is the greatest theme for song? Almost any human experience can inspire songs. People sing about everything from love and romance to bananas and guacamole. And again, I would submit to you that there is no greater theme for song than the glory of God. Because there's no higher glory. There's no deeper joy that the human soul can experience than joy in God. Exodus 15, 1 through 21, contains just such a song. And as we read, I want you to try to envision this scene so that it affects you. Imagine two million or so Israelite men and women and children standing on the shore of the Red Sea. And the water is calm. But it wasn't just moments earlier. The water was piled up in heaps on either side as they walked through dry land. Moments earlier, they were certain They were absolutely certain their lives were over. 
Pharaoh's army and his chariots and his horsemen behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, and now they stand safely on the other side. I just imagine they are hugging their loved ones. They are sobbing and laughing at the same time, sobbing because of the utter ruin that was so real and so imminent and laughing with joy because suddenly they were delivered in the most impossible, unforeseen way. And around them, Egyptian soldiers are washing ashore along with the wreckage of those chariots. And then Moses begins to sing. And that song spreads until hundreds of thousands of voices are lifted in song on that seashore. Just imagine that sound. If you're physically able, I want to invite you to stand with me out of our reverence for God's word as we read the song of Moses from Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, and the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you? O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have triumphed gloriously. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Thank you, Father, that you have made known to us your wonders from of old, recorded here in your word for us, that we might know you and know the same soul-satisfying, soul-securing joy that the Israelites knew as they stood on that seashore. Oh God, be the joy of your people here this morning and win for yourself our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of this text is that God alone deserves your passionate praise for all that he has done and for all that he is and for all that he will do. God deserves your passionate praise. God and God alone is the theme of the song of Moses. Verse 2 says, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Moses, who led the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, is not even mentioned once in the song. Not once. Pharaoh is the only human who appears here briefly in soaring and crashing pride, only to be hurled into the depths of the sea. The song is unmistakably about God. It's about God, but it beckons you. It's a song that invites you to join in this heartfelt, full-throated singing in praise of the glory of God's redeeming grace. The, the thing about songs is that they have a way of getting stuck in your head. The rhythm and the rhyme, the melody, it has a way of getting stuck in your head. It's hard to hear a good song and not be moved by it, isn't it? A good song comes on, you just find yourself tapping your toe maybe. If you're really reserved, you just, just your pinky, you just tap something, you start moving, and if you really feel like it, you start dancing along to the music or bobbing your head, and before you know it, you're singing and dancing. Moves, music literally moves you. That's incredible. It's an incredible thing about music. It, it, it is movement, movement of airways, and before you know it, you're caught up in the movement. Verse 1 begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. But did you catch how the passage ends in verse 21 with Miriam? singing. She's the sister of Moses and Aaron. She's singing that first line again with a slight change. It's not just, I will sing to the Lord. Now she's singing to others, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Miriam is beckoning everyone who hears to join her in song. Do you sing to the Lord? That, that's a different question than, do you sing well? That's not the question. Does the glory of God move you to sing of God and to God from your heart? Or I would say, does your heart sing? When your heart perceives the glory of God, your heart 
sings. That's what happens. That, that's, Exodus 15 tells us that's the appropriate response to God. Your, your passionate praise is what God aims to secure through this text. Chapter 14 recounted the events of the Red Sea crossing in narrative form. It informs you of God's glorious deeds at the Red Sea. Chapter 15 recounts those same events, but now in poetry and in song, it's meant to inspire you to sing to the Lord because of all that he has done, to sing loudly to the Lord, to sing expressively to the Lord, to sing from your heart, to sing at the top of your lungs, to sing in private, and to sing corporately, to sing Sing, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. You can't sing from the heart unless your heart is moved. You can't fake that. Moses and Israel, they sang because they, they beheld God. They saw the wonders of God with their own eyes. And just like Moses and Israel, your passionate praise will be the result of beholding. Here's my outline for this morning. Three things. What God has done who God is, and what he will do. First, sing because of what God has done. The obvious inspiration behind Moses' song was the event of the Red Sea crossing. Chapter 14 ends with these words. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What they saw with their eyes stirred their hearts to fear and trust the Lord. They were affected by the events that they beheld. It's no surprise then that the very next line, chapter 15, verse 1, begins, Then Moses and all the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. And it gives a reason. For, because, since he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. They sang when they saw the power of God displayed. In fact, after the song of Moses concludes in verse 18, the text adds this comment. One more time, in case anybody has forgotten or is tempted to forget what just happened. Verse 19, for, this is right after the song ends. That means, here's why they sang this song again. For, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Is that comment really necessary there? Whole chapter dedicated to narrating the events. Another song all about it. Because this is what God did. Verse 19 reminds us one more time. This is why they sang. Why? Because the Lord threw Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, but he brought his people through as on dry ground. In other words, the theme of their song was what God had done. So verse 11 sings, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Not just far off in the heavens, acting on earth on our behalf. God works wonders. He performs extraordinary feats. He asserts himself on earth. He is glorious. 
and he achieves glory and fame on earth by doing glorious things that make people sing. So it's fitting to sing about what God has done. Consider just the, the rich array of verbs in this song that have God himself as the subject, the doer of these actions. He has triumphed gloriously, verse 1 and verse 21. He has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea, verse 1. He has cast Pharaoh's chariot into the sea, verse 4. His right hand shatters the enemy. He overthrows his adversaries. His fury consumes like stubble. He blew with his wind. He stretched out his right hand. He led and redeemed and guided his people, verse 13. He purchased his people, verse 16. He reigns forever, verse 18. These are the glorious deeds of the Lord. These are his achievements. This is his reputation, his resume, his accomplishments, and this is what inspires heartfelt, full-throated song. Do the glorious deeds of the Lord inspire you to sing? When you think about what God has done, do you sing your heart out to the Lord? It's appropriate to do so. You have all of these same reasons the Israelites did. Scripture records God's glorious deeds so that you too can know about them and see and hear and fear. And if you think, well, I wasn't an eyewitness, so it doesn't have the same effect on me. Doesn't this song sing about the effect that the word, the news, the rumor of these events had on other nations? Other nations are trembling in fear just at the report of what happened. You have that same report. You too can fear and trust the Lord and be affected by this. But you have something even greater than Israel had. God has revealed even greater deeds than these. Listen to this vision that John recounts in the book of Revelation. Revelation 15, verses 2 and 3. This is at the very end of the Bible. John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Clearly, this heavenly vision is meant to evoke the scene in Exodus 15. Instead of Pharaoh who's been defeated, it's the beast who persecuted and ravaged the saints of God. Instead of the Red Sea, the saints are standing beside a sea of glass and their song is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. It's a greater song. It's your song. They praise God also for what he has done. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. As Greg said last week, God's glorious victory over Pharaoh at the Red Sea means way more than just, hey, he can open some hard things for you, open a path of difficulty in your life. It, it, it means that. He is that God, but he has opened the most incredible way. He has accomplished the most glorious victory in cosmic history when Jesus triumphed over sin and death and the devil on the cross. Revelation 5.9, the theme of heaven's song centers on that 
particular deed. Of all the deeds God has performed, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Your faith is rooted in objective historical reality. The work of Christ on the cross, that is our song. That's why we sing about the death of Christ again and again and again. Jesus has been the theme of more songs and more symphonies than any other person in human history for a reason. Does the death of Jesus for your sins receive your passionate praise? Second, sing because of who God is. Verse 2 says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. My strength and my song. That means God is the source of my strength He's also the source of my song. God himself inspires song. He's the theme of my song. Or, as Moses sang, he is my song. The song of Moses is not merely historical. It's doctrinal. It's theological. God's particular acts of salvation in history reveal universal truths about God. The song mentions Details that were unique to this particular event that those people witnessed with their own eyes. Pharaoh's chariots sinking in the Red Sea, the waters piling up on either side around them. It's also loaded with big and broad and universal truths about God drawn out of, inductively concluded from those events. For example, verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's true about God Always. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow. Not just one time you overthrew, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? These are universal truths about God, things that are true always. Not just at the Red Sea, not just for ancient Israel, for you today. This is who your God is. He's eternal and unchanging. He's the the great I am. God's covenant name, Yahweh, I am, is used nine times in this song, four times in the opening lines. Remember that question that Moses asked of God at the burning bush, thing he was worried about going back to Egypt, coming before the Hebrew people? Exodus 3.13 tells us, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, on the Red Sea shore, God is no longer unknown to them. The whole nation sings, the Lord is his name. What a sweet name that is to them now. God makes himself known as the great I am. He was, he is, he will be, he is unchanging, he is self-sufficient, self-existing, infinite and eternal. And he's my God. God is omnipotent. They sing in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. And they sing in verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 13 sings of God's strength and verse 16 sings of the greatness of his arm. The song speaks repeatedly about the powerful forces of nature, the sea, the floods, the depths, the waters, the deeps, the wind, the waves, the earth. And over all of it, it's clear God is reigning. He's ruling. 
He's controlling these for- forces to his own ends, for his own purposes. And after they walked through that Red Sea on dry ground, who could possibly have doubted that this God can do anything? Nothing is impossible for him. God is also a God of righteous wrath. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, which is a Hebrew figure of speech for anger and wrath, the waters piled up. Of all God's attributes, God's wrath may be, probably is the most neglected in our worship. Something about it just feels a little, we sing about God's wrath. It's one of the attributes of God and it's glorious. It's appropriate to praise God for hating and opposing sin and for crushing evil. It is a glorious and praiseworthy attribute of God to judge wickedness. And it's good for our souls to sing about it. God's to be praised for his holiness. Verse 11 asks that question, who's like you, O Lord, among the gods who's like you in majestic holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. God is unrivaled, supreme above all gods and all dictators. We call that God's holiness, his otherness, his set-apartness. He is unlike anyone or anything. Think about that. Everything you know belongs to a class of things. Your dog is one of many dogs Your car is one of many cars. You are one of billions of people. And yes, you're unique, but you belong to a class called human beings. Even angels belong to a class of things called angels. God is one of one. There is no one else. Nothing else in that class with him. He stands alone as God, which means he is of infinite value and worth, and he alone is to be feared and adored and honored and, and praised. His holiness inspires song. And Moses' song also praises God for his steadfast love. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The attribute of God displayed in leading and guiding his people, Moses calls steadfast love, which translates the Hebrew word said also translated unfailing love, mercy, faithfulness, kindness, loyalty. I think Daniel Fuller is helpful when he says, chesed represented an action far beyond what one would be obligated or expected to do, thus conveying the idea of performing a benefit that is merciful and wonderful beyond all that is customary or even imaginable. Chesed is God's exceeding kindness. It's his commitment to do far more abundantly than anything you could ask of him or even imagine that he would be capable of doing for you. It is God's relentless commitment to do surprisingly wonderful things for his people. When you're the object of God's steadfast love and his mercy and his kindness, you can't help but sing about it. Because it's glorious. Every one of these attributes of God is fitting theme for song. Who God is moves his people to sing. Do you know him? Do you know him for who he is as he's revealed in his word? Do you meditate on and ponder his attributes until 
Your heart is stirred to sing. Third, sing because of what God will do. When we get to verse 13, there is a noticeable shift in the focus of the song. It shifts from the Red Sea to the promised land. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. They're standing on the shore of the Red Sea. They've not yet arrived at God's holy abode, but that is now the theme of the rest of the song. Verses 14 through 16 speak of the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. Those are the nations that now stand between them and the promised land. Egypt, dead on the seashore. But there are other nations very much alive, very strong, ready to oppose them, Verse 17 sings, you will bring them, that is the people you have purchased, you will bring your people in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The point is that God's victory over Pharaoh and Egypt in the past proves something about God and secures their faith and their confidence in God that he will be victorious over those nations that now stand between them and the place God has promised. Think back to the opening verses of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 begins by telling us that God is keeping his promise, his mandate to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, his promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and multiply you, the promise that God repeated to the sons of Abraham, God's doing that. Exodus 1.7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. That's unmistakable language, but they're in exile. They're in the wrong place. They're not in the land God had promised to Abraham. What's more, they are oppressed and enslaved. They can't just leave Egypt to get back to their homeland. The Song of Moses celebrates and anticipates God is going to do that now. He's going to plant his people in his place. In fact, Moses' song prophetically declares God is going to finish what he started. He's going to bring us into the promised land. As Israel stood there on the shore of the Red Sea, the, the conquest of the promised land had not yet happened. What's more, nobody in this generation was actually going to live to see it. And yet, Moses sings with confidence and certainty, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The prophetic declaration, speaking about the future in the past tense, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. That, the future hope of God's people has always been to dwell with God in God's place. At the Red Sea, there was decreation and destruction for Egypt, but God's purpose in that event stretched beyond God meant to plant Israel securely. Look at those words. Your place, your abode, your sanctuary, your mountain. The place where God would manifest his glory to his people. So God destroys evil and God delivers his people with a purpose. To dwell with them forever. That's the theme of the Bible. God's people in God's place with God's presence. Have you noticed that is the way we sing too. It's the way that our songs are structured. Most of the songs we sing have a final verse that focuses on our future and eternal hope. We just sang this morning, all hail the glorious Christ. The last verse says, and on that day, upon your mountain, you will gather your redeemed and we will feast and give all glory. 
to the king. To the king. We sang Christ our hope, which ends with this verse. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Singing about what God is going to do, doesn't that cause your heart to rejoice already in the here and now? Even though we have not yet arrived there, it still remains for us to see. That future reality begins to produce joy in us as we rehearse it and anticipate it in song together. Do you sing by faith about all that God has promised to do for you in Christ. And in closing, it's worth noting that while the whole nation of Israel sang this song according to verse 1, the lyrics are incredibly personal. Let's take verse 2. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. Do you personally, it's one thing to sing along with the whole gathering of believers, do you personally know him as your God? Is he your song? Do you sing to the Lord? When you join your voice to that chorus of saints redeemed by the blood of Jesus who are exulting in and delighting in God's redeeming grace, you are participating in what I think is the most glorious sound in all creation. And singing about all that God is and all that he's done and all that he will do is one of the most powerful and effective ways to meditate on the greatness of God. Those truths to sink into your heart so that your heart is stirred by those truths and then your heart is expressed in song. When you sing to the Lord, God is glorified and your soul is satisfied in him. So may you be freshly affected by all that he is for you in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us so that you, your greatness, your glory, your grace might be the theme of our song forever. God, I pray that you would have our passionate praise. I pray that you would secure that for yourself. I pray that you would secure that from those who are walking through fiery trials in life right now and singing may be the last thing they feel like doing, but as they perceive by grace, by faith, through the work of your spirit, how great you are right now for them, that they would be stirred to sing. I pray for those who have not yet seen or tasted, as Greg prayed and said earlier, God, would you do that now? Open blind eyes to see you as glorious. And would you cause us to see and know and taste afresh the greatness of your kindness to us in Jesus, to be overwhelmed by who you are, not just to know about you in an in academic way, but to be stirred to the depths of our souls so that our souls sing, so that you're glorified. And may we sing until that day.
and then for 10,000 years and millions upon millions of years more, Christ crucified for us the theme of our song, world without end. Amen.